Hi, you're listening to Building Expert Brands. I'm Tony Gibbs, and today we're joined by Abigail Baldwin, Creative Director, and Chloe Baldwin, Company Director of the brilliantly named business Buttercrumble. Abigail and Chloe are here to explain how brands can communicate well to family audiences. Abigail and Chloe, welcome to the show. Hi, Chloe. Hello. It's great to be on. It's great to have you on as well. Thank you very much for being here. So, as always, for the listeners listening at home, you can learn a little bit more about Abigail and Chloe in the show notes. For now, let's launch right into it. So, please go ahead and explain to us how we can communicate well to family audiences. Well, it's quite, it can be very challenging for family audiences because the customer and the consumer are both different because it's obviously the parents that are often buying from these family brands, but it's going to be the children at the end of the day that are going to be using products or services. But then how do you advertise to to both of those groups and how do you make sure that your branding appeals to both mum, dad, the carer and then the children as well because children don't they don't perceive advertising the way that we do and they don't really build that long-term loyalty with a brand even though they are aware of it. So I remember when I was a child that I knew about Disney and I really loved everything that Disney did, but I don't know whether I perceive them as a brand. And I think what brands can do is to just, they need to be creating a constant stream of really fun, positive, empowering messages um, to keep children engaged as well as the parents. So this can be through the introduction of new characters or new products or limited edition um, collections. And it's all about helping to hold a child's attention who is probably very likely to be quite fickle um, that they're, they're going to go with a brand that excites them the most. So it's just really important for, for family brands to have that air of excitement. And I think that Disney uh, particularly does this really well. Brilliant. Thank you. So just before I jump into the second question, it sounds like the parents are buying, so we need to appeal to them as opposed to the kids. Is that right? Yeah, the parents are the ones that hold the purse strings, but the children have real buying power as well. So if a mum goes to the supermarket with her child, they can easily persuade their parents and sometimes they might throw a tantrum if they don't get what they want. Mm -hmm. And in fact, parents also use these products as a kind of bribing power so if the parents go to the supermarket they say well if you behave here then you're going to get a a sweet or a toy at the end of it and children really kind of buy into that deal as well so even though it is the parents that hold the purse strings and it does need to be brands do need to pay a lot of attention to the parents to ensure that they're coming across as wholesome and family-friendly. 
the children can, you know. They have the nag power. Yeah, the nag power. (laughs) Absolutely. I think a lot of brands know this, the bigger brands at least, because they run Christmas commercials and things at times where the kids will see them. So they go and nag to the parents that they want that thing, don't they? Yeah, definitely. I think as well, especially millennial parents are much more on kind of friendly terms with with children. When we were kids, I know that my like our mum and dad they weren't that like we we love our parents, but they weren't really very matey with us. They wouldn't. They wouldn't sit down and watch television with us and like enjoy our cartoons and things. But I feel now we're seeing um, a lot of parents actually kind of sharing a lot of the things that they like to watch, and it's across different platforms as well. We're not just relying on the television. We we might be going on YouTube, and people are enjoying the same kind of cartoons as their their children enjoy. So do you think the mindset of this uh, new generation of parents is different to the old generation or do you think it's technology that's made this happen? Hmm. I think it might be a bit of both and I think also maybe the media has helped because I think parents are being seen in a more positive light parents are seeing that I think the media is presenting parents as friends as well and then that's reflecting and maybe parents aren't seen so much as a real authoritative figure and maybe it is I think it's just a combination of what the media is presenting technology go on Chloe I think that um, lifestyles have changed a lot and In the UK, we're seeing a lot more parents turning to freelance or they're working from home. They're not kind of leaving their children in care or at school, especially during this lockdown and the pandemic. We're all in the home a little bit more. And because of this, parents are able to spend prolonged time with with the children and Linking back to the technology thing, I do agree that that is a big part and maybe parents are engaging more with that because YouTube or um, TikTok or, you know, whatever it might be is a lot more of a free-for-all than the television is. So maybe parents feel like they need to engage with it so they understand what it is that the children are watching whereas parents before who would go out to work and they knew that their children would be safe watching television because it would be CBBS or CBBC they they trust that and yeah I think it's the lifestyle change and it's technology as well. Interesting stuff thank you both for the insights there. So While we were setting up this call, you mentioned family audiences often have pain points around loyalty, inclusion and accessibility. Could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah, so with the loyalty element, it is about, it's particularly with children because they just don't perceive brands like we do. So 
even though the parents will be loyal, the children, they just have a one-week wonder with, with a certain brand. They love it. It's the flavour of the, the month. And then they'll move on to something else. With it, things like inclusion, there's a lot in the news, very rightly so, about diversity and inclusivity and parents want to see all children from all races all backgrounds and they want to see them in children's storybooks represented in children's toys even the food that children eat it needs to be suitable for for all audiences and that's so important because People develop an unconscious bias about things from a very young age. So it's really important that children are seeing all different races, all different people from different backgrounds doing different jobs. They need to experience that as soon as possible, really. And a lot of parents are kind of voting with their feet. And if they don't think that a brand is inclusive then they just won't buy and it doesn't matter how much their child nags about it it's almost a kind of a moral a moral value and that's really morals are so strong it can be very difficult to persuade customers on that so it's definitely an ethical ethical pain point i think as well um in today's day and age we are seeing more diverse families and communities I mean in a family you can have people from all different backgrounds they might be people from different cultures you know we're no longer kind of seeing mum dad and two children anymore there's been a real shake up and I think that it's important that this is reflected through the products you know where we're having a richer variety of different lifestyles and it's important that we acknowledge this. It, it's not just kind of morals and ethics, but I think people want to recognise themselves in the product. They want to be acknowledged. Interesting stuff. You mentioned a couple of times uh, kids and Disney and their relationship to those brands and how they might not be too aware of the brand. So I'm just thinking back to my childhood. I remember watching a lot of uh, old cassette tapes with Aladdin on and Pinocchio and all that sort of stuff. And I think my two cents on it is that maybe kids don't necessarily recognise the Disney stuff, but they do recognise the characters and the stories. And I guess maybe that's why you see them nagging the parents for the toys that are based in those universes and that sort of thing. Does that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, also, we do encourage brands to have characters or mascots because it's very strategic um, and it helps you to position yourself in a more positive manner. I mean, if you look at a brand with a mascot, it's very hard to kind of get annoyed with Pony the Tiger or whoever it might be 
bitty, you struggle to see them in the negative light. So it can help to alleviate those kinds of negative connotations. And also, you know, I do think that children are very visual and they've done studies and they are able to pinpoint different characters and even the logos of brands, they can recall them. And I think that's important when we're going into these retail environments. Like you say, if you saw a product with Pinocchio on or Aladdin, you think, oh, I've seen them, I, I remember them, and um, then they want to engage with yeah, it. And I think that human touch as well is just so much more memorable because they've personified the brand in, in a way. Um, so it's much more memorable than just a, a logo, you know, like um, the Apple logo. I guess children just don't care about that. They want to see something a bit more relatable and maybe that is other other people or other characters and something that they can really grasp onto and almost relate to that character or mascot. They see a little bit of themselves in that character or they almost aspire to be like that character. So, yeah, mascots and characters are really important. Yeah. I've had a similar conversation around humans and human brands a couple of times in the podcast in the recent history. Do you think that we are seeing more and more brands that are pitching themselves as more like humans and less like corporations nowadays? And do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, definitely, because people almost see business as a bit of a dirty word. And I think it's a shame um, because... Businesses are there to make the world a better place. Much of the time, they're trying to improve a situation um, or, or life um, for people. And I think it's just that sometimes business kids can seem a bit cold. So how do you warm that up a bit? And how do you create that bridge from the business or corporation to the customer? And I think that bridge it needs to be something human so a human-led brand can really create that connection and it's just a lot more emotional than dealing with a cold faceless corporation yeah we always say that um in this world where there's so much competition now and we're also a very global uh world you know we can see brands from america we can engage with brands in china and europe wherever it may be it's a lot harder to differentiate yourself as a brand and before maybe basing your brand on your product attributes would work because yeah you didn't have much competition you were the best choice for kitchen roll or you were the best choice for baby food whatever it may be and in order to really set yourself apart now you have to think of your brand as a person because it's very difficult to replicate a personality um, and to have that authentic and to really connect with your audience you've got to think about so much more than just product benefits it needs to be a more holistic vision and that's why more brands are becoming more human i really like the um the phrase 
businesses are there to create a, a better place and a better world that you just mentioned, Abigail, because it's very true. And our society only works because there's money going around it and there's businesses in place to keep the buses running and keep the schools going and all that sort of thing. So it's very, uh, yeah, very right. I think it's a really nice little way of putting it. Oh, thank you. I know, because there is a lot of, there's enough negativity that goes around and I think we just have to remember, like, well, I think everyone, when they get up in the morning, they just want to do the best they can and do good. I don't think anyone wakes up and thinks, you know, how many people am I going to rip off today? Because that is what some people think their business is about. And it's it's absolutely not. You you go into business because you love what you do and you want to help people. Well, fingers crossed they don't say that anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> I hope not. I, I like to see the best in people. Yeah, yeah, me too. Okay, so suppose a brand didn't communicate well. What would happen then? Um, I think it's a really good example of this is The Wing, um, which is the co-working space. that They started in America, but then they, I think they, they brought one to London. They went global, and it was supposed to be a co-working space for women and it was very brand driven it was very aesthetically beautiful everything was instagrammable and recently it's just absolutely collapsed and there's been you know a backlash and it's like even though their branding was very good people have realized that it wasn't actually genuine and now it's gone a bit sour um, and that's because as part of their brand, they promoted that they were really community driven and they're all about supporting women in business. But then loads of kind of horror stories have come out from their employees and then they've not been paired and there's been inclusion issues. And then when the employees aren't advocates for the brand, how can you expect customers to be on board too? And it's all just kind of fallen apart. There's been massive backlash across social media. It's been in the news and um, it's just led to the demise of the company really. So if you don't think about your branding properly, it can have dire consequences. You could lose your business. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. I've not heard of that. What was the name of it? Sorry. It's The Wing. The wing. Like, like, like a wing. Yeah, right. Yeah, Got it. I think it's been in the news because the, um, the co-founder recently stepped down because of all of this um, outrage and it's just kind of, it's really struggling now. So I think, yeah, you've got to really practice what you preach with the brand. It's not enough to say, oh, our personality is really caring and community driven you've actually got to show it to the consumers otherwise they'll you know start a riot against you yeah well said chloe so live your values basically (laughs) yeah that makes a lot of sense okay putting the topic to one side for a moment i notice you two work as a team in your company I'm just curious, have you always shared the same vision for the brand or do you sometimes feel like you want to pull it in different directions? 
I don't think that's a boring response at all. I think that's a nice, refreshing response because the um, the stories I've heard about partnerships are usually that they don't end well because the, the two people involved have got very different opinions on where the business should go and there's a bit of a, a split or a disconnect. So it's great to hear that you each don't have that problem because you are so, what's the word? Synchronised. Yeah, synchronised. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's really nice to hear. So... Where do you see the business going in 10 years' time? Well, we've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately. And I think we always say that we want to be like a boutique, probably always be quite... We want to deliver a personal touch always. And it's really important that we're there to, to offer that. Because often when we've spoken to clients, they've had their fingers burnt. If they've been working with really large faceless agencies, they don't like to be passed about from person to person. So I think it is really important that we keep that personal touch. But at the same time, we do need to grow our team so that we can offer an even better service in terms of how can we grow our expertise more. In maybe in, in different areas, but still keeping it very focused on... We want to work with younger heart brands, so how does that look? And I think it is about introducing more... We'd love to do more illustration as well, because that's why we set up Butter Crumble, because we saw a gap for illustrations, especially for brands, and we really want to kind of drive that to the front would you agree with me Chloe yeah absolutely I think that like you said we always want to keep it very personal and that's so that we can really cement ourselves as the expert in 
family-friendly and community-sensitive brands. We want to distill that. We don't want to kind of dilute our our knowledge or dilute our design by going off into too many different areas. Um, although we appreciate that COVID has proven don't put all your eggs in one basket. It's important to to look at different industries and audiences and as well we really see ourselves becoming more of a global studio and agency because the barriers have really been broken down I mean before COVID we must admit that we found the world to be a very tribal place even just here in the UK sometimes we found it difficult to work with the city next door even though you know we're only a few miles away it's like 15 minutes in the car we can be there but because your address doesn't say that city you're not able to work with them and covid and remote working has really shaken that all up and we've noticed a great deal of interest in the states so we're pursuing that and we were also meant to go to Business of Design Week in Hong Kong just before COVID happened and it got cancelled because of the protests there and the political unrest. But we are very interested still in, in the Asian market as well. So yeah, uh, we're keeping it kind of personal and small but very outward thinking as well. You know, we never want to be narrow-minded. Sounds like a great move. I'll understand if you don't want to share your secrets on air. I'm just trying to channel my inner listener, and I'm thinking that you mentioned the personal touch. I'm wondering if you could share a couple of examples of that personal touch that other businesses perhaps don't do that some of our listeners can learn from. Yeah, definitely. One thing that we always kind of mention is we have something called Happy Mail, and that is snail mail that we always send out to our clients because it's so much more exciting than just another email. And we send all sorts to the people we work with and it's always handwritten. You know, we go, we put the stamp on the envelope and post it ourselves and it can be anything from their birthday card. We send thank you cards some you know sometimes we'll send a gift if they've been an especially lovely client so that you know I think that the, the happy mail is always makes our clients happy and also just it's been difficult because we haven't been able to have in-person meetings recently but we always make an effort with our hospitality you know, you should. It's really important that when someone visits you in your studio or your office, that you're there ready with a, a coffee or a tea and biscuits. And it sounds really obvious, but trust me, I've been to meetings before and I haven't even been offered a glass of water. <laughs> um, so it's just things like that. It's it's a bit of common sense, really, about just being. Uh, nice to people. I was going to say something else that seems very obvious as well, but people don't actually take on board. And you are very welcome to share these thoughts as well, Tony. Um, 
like Abigail and I would say this to anybody, but a lot of people that come to us say, oh, I tried to get in touch with so-and-so, but they just never responded to me. And I think if you want to really deliver that personal touch to people and show that you care, common courtesy is such a like great foundation for you because uh, it's amazing how many people reach out to designers, agencies, whoever it may be, and people just can't be bothered to respond or I don't know what happens, but we have a rule. We say that we get back to people within 48 hours and we always stick to that because I think, you know, you obviously we're all very busy, but there's no excuse for not getting back to someone within a couple of working days by email. I think that's the least that you could do for somebody. I think to add to that as well, um, I've been interacting with you both for a week or two now in the run-up to this call. And what the listeners won't know is that you've been incredibly polite and friendly to me from the outset, even though you didn't know me before the fact. So that's been lovely. And it, it really does highlight that, that personal effort, you know. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm pleased it comes yeah, I'm pleased it comes across too. Yeah, that's what it's all about. It's just about, you know, collaborating with people and being, be, I always think that good manners cost nothing and can get you very far in life. So you just got to, yeah, keep smiling. I like how that, Brill. <laughs> so the second to last one is, I love the business name, Butter Crumble. What inspired it? <laughs> we've always we've always loved baking and and sweet things and when we first started out we started posting online on um a social media platform for artists called deviant art um, i don't know if you are aware of it tony it's changed a little bit now but it was very popular I don't know, maybe it was like 10 years ago or something now. And we both had different usernames, so I would post work under Apple Crumble and Chloe was Butter Scones. And then after a while, we thought, oh, why are we working separately? Two heads are better than one. So we just mushed our names together to come up with Butter Crumble, and it's just stuck ever since. Brilliant. Love it. Okay, last question. Is there anything I should have asked today that I hadn't asked? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure, really. Um, Abigail, do you want to talk about like anything else to do with accessibility or inclusion? Um, I just, maybe, it, like, what is design's... Why is design important for for accessibility, or what's the role of design um, yeah. for that? And I think sometimes people just think that design is it's just about pretty pictures. Like uh, some people will joke and say that we do colouring in for a living, and sometimes we do colouring in, but not all the time. And I think it is mm-hmm. just you always you've always got to be grateful for design because it has improved our lives an, an awful lot 
And, you know, even if something is beautified through design and it looks better, it's actually easier for people to use because they want to use that thing because it is it is attractive. Like so design is there to to improve how we can access things and just make the world a better place, really. I know it's a bit hammy, but that's you know, we've got to really big up design because it does do an awful lot. Yeah, I think we've got to step up to the the challenge as well because uh, with accessibility now, there are a lot of restrictions and kind of rules and boundaries put in place for design. You can't just do whatever you want to do. I mean, you've got to think about sentence case with copy or you've got to think about accessible colours um, for people who are neurodiverse or even the, f- the fact that we can easily overlook that some people can't enjoy or they can't interact with visual design you know some people are visually impaired so how do we design for them how do we communicate key messages and really it's about seeing design more of a creative problem solving tool it's it's a way of thinking it's not just creating pretty pictures like Abigail said um, so I think it's really important that designers step up to that challenge and maybe leave their egos at the door a little bit you know do, we can't all have this artist mentality all the time how do we create something beautiful that everybody can enjoy and it is possible. It's a really um, interesting question. Should design exist to make the world a better place? It makes me think of Debbie Millman's book. I think it's uh, Branding and Other Great Pursuits, where she interviews loads of experts. And I think she asked someone at one point whether they think that design should go out of its way to improve the world. So one example of that is the climate change what was it called extinction rebellion the chap that created the uh, the visual i think it was an icon or a logo for that he did it without pay he just did it for the good of the world basically and just got it up on a wall and then some other people said oh that's really good and then he just cracked on and made loads of them and that's quite a nice thing in itself but the book i think asks whether we should feel like we have to and I wonder about that. I think maybe if designers were all forced to do things like that, it might not have as good a result in the end. It might be more powerful if a selection of those people choose to create great things. Does that make sense? Am I going on a yeah, wild tangent? Yeah, because I think if you can almost feel like the whole weight of the world is on your shoulders if you have to if you're a designer and you've got everyone pointing their finger at you saying you've got to make the world better because you'd be like oh it's a bit it's a lot of pressure so I think it needs to be something where I know that if I'm under too much pressure my mind goes blank so it's more about you know, let's not pile loads of pressure on. If you have that spark of inspiration, go for it. But if not, you know, don't worry too much. 
you just got to keep considering your audience and what parameters that brings because it's something as simple as colour that has different connotations in different cultures and you know if we had to consider every single person on this planet for maybe a takeaway menu here, <laughs> here in Leeds or wherever you know it's just not it's overkill so always keep your audience at the core of what you're doing. I appreciate that we might be on slightly different wavelengths in that I'm talking about climate change and you're talking about accessibility for people with colour blindness and other things like that. So yeah, I completely 100% agree with what you're saying there. We need to be aware of the audience and the people that we don't necessarily see every day but are out there and need our help. Wonderful. So is there anything else you two would like to add before we call it a day? No, I don't think so. I, I feel like that was really, it's been really lovely to, to chat with you. I can't think of anything else. Are you, are you okay, Chloe? Yeah, I think we just, like, we'd really love to expand our network uh, with people who are interested in this area or who are um, family-focused or community-sensitive organisations. So if you could link back to us in any way, we'd really appreciate that. And we'd be happy to keep the conversation going with you or, or anybody else. Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's gone out live. So, well, it's not live on air, but you know what I mean. It's going out. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure if any listeners are looking to work with you on that, then they'll reach out, hopefully. Okay, Abigail, Chloe, this has been great. Where can the listeners find out more about you online? If you search for Butter Crumble, you'll find us. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're, or you can visit our website at www.buttercrumble.com. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you both on. Thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely. Ditto, absolutely. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And please join me again on Building Expert Brands. To our for now.